0: So, uh, I'm I'm sometimes, oftentimes, surprised when my family goes out for uh, a treat or a dessert or something, and you find these seemingly contradictory ingredients in the same dish when you go to a restaurant, right? Um, You know, you find these things that are put on the same plate or in the same scoop of ice cream, and they just don't seem like they would go well together. And the, the first time this craze sort of popped up, I think it was everything surrounding bacon, right? And Matt, Matt Zrus knows all about this, but bacon donuts, bacon chocolate, bacon lollipops, bacon ice cream. They don't seem to go together, but they, but they do. Or the flavors of ice cream and salt and straw. I kid you not, I looked this up this morning. There is salted caramel Thanksgiving with turkey ice cream right now. I looked this morning. And there is spiced goat cheese with pumpkin pie. Oh, okay. (laughs) I should have done the spiced goat cheese with pumpkin pie first. But things that seem like they're contradictory that really go together and really actually probably belong together. And today, in our sermon series, as we're going through the book of Matthew, we come to chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. And it's a place where we find two things that seem to be very contradictory actually come together and actually belong together. And that is God's love and God's judgment. Or put it another way, God's love and God's authority. And so we're just going to look at this text under three headings Uh, love's authority, love's confrontation, and love's presence. Love's authority, confrontation, and presence. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn them to Matthew chapter 18, and I will read to us verses 15 to 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is God's word for us this morning. Pray with me. Father, we come to you today in this uh, challenging text, Lord. This challenging text that talks about love's authority and love's confrontation, love's judgment. And we pray that we would have ears to hear. And that you would help us as we look to your word and we would ultimately be submitted to your word, God. And Father, finally, we pray that the beauty and glory of your Son, our dear Savior, Jesus Christ, would be um, evident and known and received by faith in our hearts through the preaching of your word. We ask God you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Point one, love's authority. So verse 15, as we just read, says to us, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So if your brother sins, go confront him and win him, gain him, win him back. And here, what we have in this idea here is a picture in love and care that is deeply commingled with authority. That God's love is melded and intermixed, it's it's one of the same with God's authority. And this whole idea of love and authority or love and judgment is easily the most contradictory idea to the world. I, I don't think I can overstate this point. In in saying that in, in postmodern 2018 Western society, love means no boundaries no judgments or conditions. In this modern view of love, it justifies whatever our hearts want and whatever our hearts feel, rejecting any authority that gets in the way of that. And I don't think I can overstate this point that this might be where Christianity is most at odds with this cultural moment. And it it hasn't been like that for all of world history. There have been different points where Christianity has been most at odds with what the predominant thinking was in the culture around it. But for this cultural moment in Western society, 2018, postmodern era, the idea that love is actually something that has authority and can confront is absolutely lost on the world. And I don't just share this insight with you because of my desire to be some kind of cultural commentator or for us to muse about these things for a while but I share them because we are like fish in water and we don't even know that we're wet because in the bible and in christianity love and authority are side by side and it's difficult it's hard for us to get our minds around it, around that idea because Everything else that is being thrown at us is giving us a vision of the good life that's found in casting off restraint. Now, this notion of the good life. Make, make no mistake that both the Bible and the world around you are both setting before you a vision of true happiness. Whatever TV shows you watch, whatever news stations you watch, whatever books you're reading, whatever articles you're reading, they're casting before you a vision of the good life, a vision of what human flourishing actually looks like, a vision of how you're going to be truly happy. You have to know that, that everything you read, every blog you read, every TV show you watch, every movie you watch, there's a message in there that's showing you this is what it is to be truly human and truly happy. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. You're inundated in it. As you walk through the mall, visions of the good life are being presented before you. This kind of way of looking, this kind of way of dressing, this kind of way of talking. It's always there. It's always before you. You have to know that. Both are presenting, the Bible and the world are presenting a vision of what it means to find your true self, but they are presenting it in very radically different ways. What do I mean by love and authority? Well, I realize that it can sound arrogant at first. Because, in a sense, we are saying we know what is best for other people. We know what's best for other people, right? And so the response from the culture is something like this. See, that's exactly my point. Why can't you just let people alone... Let them live their lives and let them choose the path that's best for them. A few thoughts. First, the accusation is that by bringing authority into people's lives, we are saying we know what is best for other people. That's the charge. That that by going to people and exercising authority or confronting them, we're saying we know what's best for them. But think about it for a moment. What is the other side of the coin saying? Isn't it saying the same thing? Isn't the rebuttal, let people alone, let them choose their own path, let them find their own way, because that's what's best for them? Avoiding the value judgment is impossible. Both sides, both positions are saying, this is what is best for people. One is saying, let them alone, let them find their own path, and the other is saying, don't let them find their own path, but both are holding out a picture of what the good life looks like. There's no avoiding that. Avoiding the value judgment is impossible. Second, I do think, though, that deep down we all know the necessity of confrontation, some of you know that, well, some of you know that I've got this weird thing where my alarm goes off really early on Sunday mornings, and I kind of dream in and out, and kind of dream my sermon a little bit. And I was lying in bed this morning, thinking about this very point, and praying for an illustration, and I dozed off, and I had a dream. And the dream was that I was with my son, Benjamin, and I was with my father-in-law, Dennis, and we were up at Mount Tabor, and Dennis and I were like these two we were standing across from each other, and it was about six feet between us, and we were just looking at each other. And from out of the corner of our eye, Benjamin comes down this hill on his bike, and he's got his hands in the air, and he's got his eyes closed, and he's just racing which happens, just FYI. <laughs> it's probably a scene from Saturday, okay? And my father-in-law and I, we just stare at him. And he buzzes right between us and he slams into this tree. So I guess that's the illustration I'm supposed to give to you this morning. (laughs) Is that we know the necessity of confrontation. It's just innate in us. We know that when we see in a child, we see our son, I see my son about to do something that's going to bring harm to himself, that's going to injure himself. It is right and good and morally necessary for me to step in and stop him. We know it at the most fundamental basic level. We know at the most fundamental and basic level it is right and good for us to step in and confront and prevent harm, prevent injury, prevent mistake. And it's appropriate by way of application as we have this baby dedication this morning. And we've agreed that we'll raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And we've agreed that as a congregation, we're going to hold up each other. And helping us to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That it's right to think this way about child training. That the loving thing to do is to cross our child's will. The loving thing to do is prevent them from talking and walking and acting in an evil, inappropriate way. We know it, the Bible commands for children to obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. If the Bible can command children to obey your parents, it certainly follows that parents should require their obedience. Crossing their will. Because love is always seeking the good of another. Love is always care. Love is always seeking the welfare of another, seeking the good of a child, seeking the good of a friend. And quite honestly, when we think more about this, when we think that it's the loving thing to do to prevent somebody from doing something that's wrong, that's harmful, we begin to realize that confrontation is actually a sign of belonging. Confrontation is actually a sign of belonging. Listen to the Proverbs. Proverbs. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. Your children fathers will know that you delight in them that you care for them because you confront them. Hebrews 12:6 says for the discipline, the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. That is an audacious claim from the writer of Hebrews, that if you do not receive discipline from the Lord, then you're not really a son. And fathers, if you don't actually discipline your children, you're treating them as illegitimate children. So we know, though, as pastors and elders, that this is a difficult thing to do to engage in child training and learning how to do it and learning how to do it in love and learning how to not do it in anger. And so we want to help you. And one of the conversations that we're having as elders is beginning a family room series coming up this winter where we're going to gather. The details are still being worked out. But to talk about these things in a more concerted fashion on either on a Wednesday night or maybe a Saturday morning, we're still considering the best way to do that because we want to be here as those that are equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry to help you raise your children to the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But finally... To the question, does it sound arrogant to say, I know what is best for the other person? What we are ultimately saying, my friends, is that God is the one who knows best and not us. And thank God that he has not left us to our own devices, to forge our own paths in this world, but he is and we have a gracious and loving God who infinitely cares for us and has given us his word. The problem that we experience, that we all experience, is that the world is on full blown visual blast, and the Word of God is oftentimes like a quiet sound in a distant past. And it is so easy to feel the temptation that Eve felt in the garden Did God really say? Did God really say? That's been the temptation from the beginning to doubt God's Word and to doubt God's character. To doubt God's word and to doubt God's goodness. But as we look to him and his word, we look to his commands and his word, and we struggle to trust, but we see that he is good and he is good all the time as we look to his word. So that's point one, love's authority. But point two is love's confrontation. In verses 15 to 17, Jesus is just giving us a, a very practical, A very mechanical way in which we should go about approaching and confronting another brother or sister. Now, by way of context, it's worth noting to us that previously in chapter 18 is what Matt Drust preached on a couple weeks ago. And in this passage, it's the passage, it's the parable of the lost sheep. It's the wonderful story of the heart of the shepherd. The heart of the shepherd, the heart of the father who incessantly pursues the one lost sheep out of the ninety-nine. A beautiful, beautiful picture. Jesus says, What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is the will of my Father who is in heaven that not one of these little ones should perish. Remarkable. The father, the shepherd, pursues the one who is straying, and when he finds him, he rejoices. He celebrates. His heart's glad. As Andrew read to us today from the prodigal son, that he puts a ring on his finger, he puts a robe on his back, he puts sandals on his feet, he slays the fattened calf, and they have a party. That's the heart of the father. That's the heart of the shepherd. And maybe, though, you left last week, or Matt's sermon a couple weeks ago, and said, okay, that's great. How do I embody the heart of this shepherd, the heart of this father? So, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The application of the parable of the lost sheep is the loving confrontation of a brother and sister that we find in verse 15 to 17. That's the application. The heart of the Father, this loving, outlandish, over-the-top kind of love and mercy and care is practically worked out through confrontation. Love and authority coming together. Love and judgment coming together. Love and confrontation coming together. They are not mutually exclusive ideas. They are the application of that kind of loving, gracious care. So walking through these instructions of Jesus, what do we learn here? First, it says that if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. And I want to show you something. I need to show you something that I don't really want to show you because I don't want you to feel like your Bible translations have been undermined, but I'll come full circle in the end and show that it isn't, but just go with me for just... A short aside, I think it's important. The phrase against you, if your brother sins against you, doesn't appear in many of the earliest and best manuscripts. In many of the earliest and best manuscripts, it simply says, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault. Even in the Greek text that some of us are reading right now, the phrase, which is against you, is in brackets, indicating that there is some variant manuscript evidence. Now, I said in the end I don't think it matters, and here's why. Because the meaning is the same either way. The meaning is ultimately the same either way. Because whether it says if your brother sins, or it says your brother sins against you, the application is the same if we understand the truly corporate nature of life together in Christ. Because friends, our sin is never, ever, ever an isolated, private, and secret matter that only affects us as an individual. All of our sin always has corporate effects. So whether it says against you or not, it is against us. And it is against you. Because sin, the notion that sin is somehow isolated, private, secret, that it's just something that's, that's between me and, and, and nobody else, is simply not true. And nowhere in the Bible is this the case. Everywhere in the Bible, sin comes to show itself to be a corporate reality. Remember Joshua chapter 7? The people, when they're taking the, the, the town of Ai, and they're told to not take any of the plunder, not to take, to take any of the gold, any of the, any of the plunder from, from battle, any of the spoil. And Achan, Achan disobeys that. And 36 men lose their life because of the sin of Achan. Because sin is always a corporate reality. Listen to Paul in First Corinthians chapter five. He's talking about a very heinous sin situation. He's talking about a situation where a man has his, uh, his 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 father's wife, presumably his stepmother. They're in a sexual relationship. So, in a sense, it's just between these two people, or maybe these three people, right? But listen to what Paul says. He says, do you not know that a little leaven, leaven is the whole lump? Cleanse out the old, that you may have a new lump, as you are already unleavened. He says the sin that is existing between these two people is having an effect on the entire congregation. Now, I hesitate to share this next example, because I don't necessarily... I can just say it's my own experience. Okay? My own experience would, would, would play this out. And, it, and it's looked like this. If I have been in a place uh, where I'm engaged in some kind of private sin, say it, uh, a lustful thought, or um, you know, an, an angry pattern with somebody, or even, let's say, a, a private fight with my wife. I have firsthand noticed, even if my kids don't have any firsthand knowledge of it, that there is an effect in the relationship in my home. I don't know if it's a spiritual warfare thing, I don't know if it's a demonic thing, I don't know what it is, but I can just say from my own experience, my own sin as a father, as the leader of my household, as the head of my wife, even if it's a private sin that only I know about, has had effects in my family. And I think that's the point that the Bible is consistently trying to make to us, that we don't truly understand the corporate reality of our life together. We don't truly understand that our sin is never an isolated, private, or secret matter and it only affects us as individuals. But it always has corporate effects. Listen to Bonhoeffer in Life Together, chapter 5. Sin demands to have a man by himself it withdraws him from the community the more isolated a person is the more destructive will be the power of sin over him and the more deeply he becomes involved in it and the more disastrous is his isolation sin wants to remain unknown it shuns the light in the darkness of the unexpressed it poisons the whole being of a person this can happen even in the midst of a pious community In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. The sin must be brought into the light. The unexpressed must be openly spoken and acknowledged. All that is secret and hidden is made manifest. It is a hard struggle until the sin is openly admitted. But God breaks the the gates of brass and the bars of iron. Since the confession of sin is made in the presence of a Christian brother, the last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. The sinner surrenders, he gives up all his evil, his heart is back to God, and he finds all the forgiveness of his sin in the fellowship of Jesus Christ and his brother. And there they together express and acknowledge that sin has lost all its power. So first thing that we learn in love's confrontation is that it's a corporate reality. But the second thing that we learn from Jesus is the private nature of confrontation. The private nature of confrontation. What does Jesus say here? Does he say, if your brother sins against you, go to your pastor? If your brother sins against you, go tell your wife about it? If your brother sins against you, go to a friend under the auspices of advice? No. Jesus says it is a private matter. You know, there's a term that, um, that has been used by uh, those that have thought through ecclesiology for hundreds of years. And it's a term that, that your grandparents, if they, were, if they were good Presbyterians or Baptists, would have known. And that is formative versus corrective discipline. When we talk about discipline, we're talking about formative versus corrective discipline. And formative discipline is Matthew 18, verse 15. It's that kind of private confrontation that goes on that nobody ever knows about. I was thinking about this last night and and just kind of thinking about what that would look like. What if, I'll tell you what it would look like, one, one way it would look, is that if 10 years from now, we as the church looked at our collective holiness and we saw that the church had become more godly, more holy, and we would sort of be puzzled to wonder, why did that ever happen? It would be because, likely, formative discipline in the form of Matthew eighteen fifteen, private, one on one, no one else ever knows about it, confrontation was taking place. And the church would slowly build itself up in love, it would slowly build itself into maturity in Christ, and we would be none the wiser. Until we remembered one day, oh yeah. That's what Matthew eighteen fifteen says. The goal here is never to shame, it's never to embarrass, it's never to domineer or hold it over, it's always to gain. It's to win. The shepherd rejoices over the one. The father puts a ring on his finger, a robe on his back and throws a party. Confrontation is never retributive. It's never an opportunity for you to get your licks in. It's never an opportunity for you to nail someone to the wall. And if that's where your heart's at, you're simply not ready. You are simply not ready to confront someone. And we'll address that next week in verses 21 to 35. Until you've forgiven and seen the forgiveness that you have in Jesus Christ, you're not ready to confront someone because it'll be retributive in nature. Because the goal here is always to gain. It's always to win. It's always to rejoice over the one restored. Restored. Paul will tell us the same thing. The New Testament will bear this out continually. Paul says in Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, anyone, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's Paul's instruction to the church. That a spirit of gentleness, a spirit of winsomeness, a spirit and a heart that desires to gain, to win back, to rejoice, that's kind of just ready to pounce to rejoice. Not ready to pounce to tear down. But Jesus goes on. And he says, If this private confrontation doesn't prevail, then we should include a few more. To lovingly, winsomely, gently pursue this brother or sister. And this is something that we talk a lot about in our church covenant, in our relational commitments. These are commitments that we're making to one another. We say at the end of our church covenant that we invite... This kind of loving care into our lives. Our church covenant is an application of love meeting confrontation, love meeting discipline, love meeting authority, love meeting judgment. And what we're saying on the front end of our church covenant and church membership relationships is we're just giving rails, we're just setting lanes, we're just laying track to define what the relationship's gonna look like. To just acknowledge from the very beginning that we are sinners in need of much care, much mercy, and grace. And we do not have it all together, so we should expect it when our brothers and sisters lovingly come to us and confront us. Because that's how the church is built up in love. But finally, the third step. Jesus says, if all this private confrontation doesn't win our brother or sister, he says that we bring it to the church. And we let the church ultimately adjudicate the process. And this process is led and often tied by, by, matters of, by reasons of prudence as guided by the elders. That if an unrepentant brother or sister won't yield to the church, he's to be to us a Gentile and a tax collector. And from the beginning of the Bible to the end, God has always drawn a line of distinction between his people and the world. The Garden of Eden had an inside and an outside. As does Noah's Ark, as did the people of God in the wilderness... As did the nation of Israel, and finally, as does now the church. So what does it mean to be to us a Gentile and tax collector? Two things. It means that the person is no longer under the protection of the church. And Paul says it quite soberly in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. For the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The removal of the covering of the church, no longer welcome at the Lord's table, and the release into the world for the destruction of his flesh. A very, very difficult act of love. An act that protects the purity of the church. An act that preserves the honor and glory of God's name and an act that is a plea for the person to repent. But second, we are to treat this person as a Gentile and a tax collector. And that just quite basically means that the relationship turns to one of evangelism. And this isn't the first time that these two terms have been used in Matthew's gospel. Gentile and tax collector. We don't have to just somehow create some categories and think about, oh, I wonder what that means. What did Jesus mean? Well, Matthew has it for us. Matthew nine ten says, And Jesus was reclining at the table, and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came near and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So to treat one as a tax collector is to treat them and entreat them to come to God through Jesus Christ. To forsake the life they've been living. To welcome them back. To be ready to pounce with that celebratory rejoicing when the one comes back. It's a very difficult balance to hold. The Bible holds this tension very high. It's very deep waters here. It's very high swimming to keep our our heads above water. Because on the one hand we're saying for the destruction of his flesh by Satan, and at the other we're saying the loving care of evangelism. Love and judgment. Or Gentiles. Remember. In September and October and over the summer, we were preaching through how Jesus, in Matthew 15, he went away from there and he withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter severely oppressed by a demon. And he heals this woman's daughter. This woman is a Gentile woman in Gentile territory, and that's where Jesus goes. And that's a tension we must learn to hold and hold together. Because our aim, our hope, our deepest longing is for this person to repent and come back to Jesus. The New Testament continually plays this out. James five nineteen says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him, who, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Saving his soul from death means saving his soul from Sheol means saving his soul from hell grabbing one who's wandering and pulling him back know that you've saved his soul from death to not confront is ultimately not loving to not care and not realizing that our that souls and lives are hanging in the balance is not an ultimate loving act or paul in 2 Corinthians when he's talking about the act of restoration he says for such a one this punishment by the majority is enough So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. So that he's not overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Lord willing, as the years go on, we will see that kind of loving restoration happen. It's what we long for, it's what we pray for. So that's point two, love's confrontation. Well, point three is love's presence. Because, as we've said, how challenging and how difficult this is. To hold these two in balance, to do them well, to do them humbly. And Jesus knows that. Jesus is a gracious and loving Savior. He's a friend of sinners. He's Lord of the church. And he knows how hard it is how very difficult it is to walk through these deep waters of loving discipline. And so, you know what he does? He gives us a promise and he gives us his presence. He gives us a promise and he gives us his presence. First, promise. Truly, I say to you that whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if you two agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. This binding and loosing means the authority to permit or prohibit. Jesus is giving that kind of authority to the church. It's what he would said to Peter in Matthew chapter 16 when Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. He said that I give to you the keys of the kingdom. I give to you the authority to bind and to loose, to permit or prohibit. That's remarkable. Because if you think about uh, what's no, what, what term we could call the melodic line of the book of Matthew, which means if there was one thesis statement that's drawing through all 28 chapters, I would say it's something like this. That Jesus Christ, the King of Israel, has been given all authority and all must obey him. From the prologue, he's the son of David. He's the rightful king. He teaches on the mountain. It's true and Better Moses. He's on the mountain of transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. And the father opens the heavens and says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then at the close in Matthew 28, he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And now Go baptize, and teach the nations to obey everything I've commanded. So Jesus Christ, the rightful King of Israel, has been given all authority in heaven and earth so that all, must, all might obey Him. And that authority, that is Jesus's, He gives in a vice-regent capacity through the keys of the kingdom to the church. In a sense, what He's saying is that when you exercise authority, heaven itself will back you up. And he's not saying that, of course, we, we, we move heaven's hand and that whatever we bind, heaven is going to bind, and whatever we lose, heaven is going to lose. Because the tense of the verb here is intensely important. It's a future perfect passive. It's a future perfect passive, which should read like this. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. It's not that we're perfect, but Jesus is assuring that in our discipline, when done humbly in obedience to him, we are ratifying outwardly what has already been determined in heaven. That's an amazing authority that Jesus has given the church. We ought to take it seriously. We ought to walk circumspectly when we do it. And we ought ought, walk obediently as well. But Jesus gives us a second thing. He gives us his presence. He says, again, I say to you, if you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And you know, this verse is applied in many ways. It's applied when there's a snowstorm and we can't get to church and three of us show up and we remind each other that even Jesus is here among us. And that's true. That's a reasonable application, but its first application, its first meaning, its first intent was to give us a promise of his presence when dealing with the difficult matters of the ministry of reconciliation and the ministry of restoration. Because he knows how difficult it is. He knows how difficult it was going to be for us to do it. And he says, look, when you guys gather together and you agree in my name, I am there among you fear not, fret not, your loving Savior, the Lord of the church, is in your midst. So, as we draw to a close here, if, if you're here this morning and you've wandered from Jesus, His loving, gracious And merciful arms are waiting for you. He's not a vindictive father. He's not a vindictive Jesus. Who's ready to give you a tongue lashing. He's a Jesus. Who will rejoice more over your coming back. Than he does over us who are sitting here now. Who never wandered. That is mercy and grace that is untold. That is love. That we cannot fathom. Love that we cannot know. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. And they begin to celebrate. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready. He stands to save you. He's full of pity. He's full of power. He is able. He is able. He is willing, doubt, no more all the fitness that he requires is for you to feel your need of him because my friends this love and mercy excuse me this love and judgment this love and authority this love and confrontation meet ultimately and truly at the cross of jesus christ because at the cross the judgment and the confrontation for our sin was met And it was met where the full wrath of God was poured out on it in our place and on our behalf because the love of the Savior, the love of the Father and the unity of the Spirit was seen at the cross as well. No other place in all of human history can we see these things come together, love and judgment, can we see them come together than at the cross of Jesus Christ. Your sin, your confession, your confrontation will never be a means of keeping you from the love and mercy of God. Your repentance, your coming to him, your looking to him, is just a means to savor and get more of his grace again. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for the love that you've shown us in Jesus Christ. This love that is so amazing. It demands my life my everything, my all. Love so amazing. Love that can confront in such a way that brings us even closer to you. Help us, Father, to be that kind of church, to be a countercultural community. We ask for your help in Jesus' name, amen.